0: Hi, I'm
1: Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Kunervos, and this is Political Theory 101.
0: So today on Political Theory 101, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do... George Bernard Shaw and G.K. Chesterton together as a pair. These are both uh, British writers of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. They were very famous writers. They wrote a lot of fiction, a lot of uh, plays, novels. They were uh, you've probably heard the names before. You've probably seen them in quote books. They are in lots of quote books. They have a lot of witticisms and little humorous jokes that they had told over the years. They knew each other. They argued with each other. They didn't agree about a lot of different things. They had a debate in 1928, so about 95 years ago, about the economy. So. In this episode, we're going to focus mainly on the political writings of Chesterton and Shaw. We're not going to focus on the fiction. And we're going to focus on some of the areas of disagreement between them. And the kind of function or purpose of this is to think a little bit about how people in Britain 100 years ago or so uh, thought the world was going to be, how they thought it was going to develop, where they thought all of this was going to go. So Shaw uh, got going as a Fabian socialist uh, originally, a socialist who thought that very gradually over time, politicians, even politicians who opposed socialism or declaimed it, would gradually make reforms that would move society in a socialist direction. Uh, Shaw was a major, major figure in the Fabian society, the society that uh, founded the London School of Economics. And uh, also a uh, significant apologist for Stalin in the 20s and 30s. Uh, Not necessarily a Democrat. There are points in Shaw's corpus where he suggests that democracy may gradually be extended over time as part and parcel of the gradual expansion of socialism. But there are also moments in Shaw's corpus where he seems uh, pretty critical of democracy and pretty sympathetic to other kinds of regimes, Uh, and not just Stalin. There are uh, periods in Shaw's uh, corpus where he seems a little bit sympathetic to Hitler. So uh, complicated guy, George Bernard Shaw. Uh, Then you've got G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton is a a Catholic and a distributist. So uh, both think that there needs to be some major change in the way that wealth is distributed in Britain, but the way of thinking about it is different. So at the outset of the debate, both Shaw and Chesterton agree that the distribution of wealth is unacceptable. But Chesterton emphasizes that this cannot mean state ownership because for Chesterton, the state is necessarily personated by a very small number of people. So if the state owns stuff, but the state is a very small elite group, then state ownership doesn't mean that everybody owns property. It only means that that small ruling group owns the property. So Chesterton suggests that Shaw really means to uh, distribute the state's income among the people. But he points out that this equal distribution of income is not an equal distribution of property, right? So if we go back to the universal basic income discussion we were having, this idea that the state gets it's hands on all the wealth and can then distribute that wealth out to people in terms of an income, right? In that situation, everybody has an income, but the property is all owned by the state and the state is paying incomes to citizens off of that rent that it obtains from all the property that it owns. So Chesterton doesn't like this because he thinks what people need is not income, but property, that they need not just Money coming in, but to actually own sources of wealth themselves. So Chesterton argues for redistributing the land and the machines, for redistributing physical capital so that people can individually own the means of production. Now, Shaw replies that Chesterton's view of property is out of date because it is impossible to physically break up a modern factory or a mine into little pieces without losing the advantages provided by scale. So you can imagine an ancient society that's very agricultural, where you could do land reform and distribute a lot of agricultural land in small parcels out to a large number of people. It's much harder to do that kind of thing with a factory with a mine. Those things are hard to divide up and split up and give every person their own little bit or their own little track. Mines are especially, Very clear examples of this because mines are not evenly distributed throughout the territory. Mines are in one particular place and it's hard to divide that place up into little bits physically. You can divide the income that the mine generates up into little bits, but it's hard to physically split the mine. Now, if you nonetheless insist that you've got to have a society of small farmers and artisans, well, the consequence of that is that you won't have an industrial society. You won't have a society that's competitive or productive. Now, Chesterton replies that, okay, there are exceptions. Certain forms of property will have to pass into state ownership like coal mines. But he says, hey, farms aren't like mines. It should be possible to create a considerable number of family farms by breaking up large estates. Shaw replies that when farmers die and their land is divided up among their sons, this creates a big mess because the plots eventually become too small. Some of the sons are inevitably forced to move into the cities to look for work. And what happens to them? For sure, the only way to ensure these men are not abandoned is to abolish private property in general. Chesterton likens the idea that people will voluntarily give up private property to the idea that they will voluntarily give up meat or alcohol. For him, it's a Puritan sensibility that Shaw has in thinking that people who own property will voluntarily give it up. He argues that only those who own property are free and that if all the property passes into state ownership, the people will be slaves of the state. So if you have something like an old-fashioned ancient Greek or Roman notion of what it means to be free, you could see how you'd get to a position like Chesterton's. Chesterton uh, and Shaw really don't manage to get much further with the debate than this. It ends with the moderator, Hilaire Belloc, asserting that the whole discussion will soon be antiquated because either industrial civilization will collapse or it will make contented slaves of us all. If it collapses, that collapse will either produce a return to traditional modes of life, or it will produce an unlivable wasteland. He says that perhaps in different parts of the world, there will be different outcomes and different combinations of these things. But in all of these scenarios, the distributive question will lose relevance completely. However, the moderator says this will all happen after both Shaw and Chesterton are dead. So they will not live to see it and they will not live to recognize how irrelevant their conversation ultimately was. So what I want to ask Alex, and we'll talk about some of the other works apart from this debate, but I want to bring Alex in now. I want to ask Alex, do you think that this debate is still relevant or do you think that one of these outcomes that uh, Belloc identifies uh, has indeed happened to us?
1: Um, what would you say it counts as a civilization collapse? Because when I travel anywhere and you see the same type of roads and gas stations and advertisements, you tend to think you're in one civilization. So you could say it's a continuous, I wouldn't say capitalism, maybe like American flavored civilization everywhere. So I'd say no. And then, but would I say it's just the rich exploiting the poor? I don't know. It hasn't
0: collapsed though. That certainly hasn't collapsed. Certainly the living standard today in just about every part of the world is higher than it would have been in 1928. That doesn't necessarily mean everybody lives better or everybody's happier, but in raw economic terms, just about every part of the world has a higher per capita income today than in 1928. Maybe Argentina might be an exception. I'd have to look that up. No, I don't think Argentina is an exception. I think 1928 is far enough back that even Argentina is richer today than in 1928. Uh, But yeah, this is a a difficult question. I think that uh, certainly a lot of people would make the argument that what has happened is that we have become contented slaves in the sense that lots of people don't own the means of production in Chesterton's sense, but also they don't have an income given to them by the state that's derived from the state's ownership of everything in the Shaw sense. Neither one of those things has, have happened. There are welfare programs, but those welfare programs are paid for with tax or with borrowing money from private entities that own the motive, the means of production, right? So it's not the case that the state has nationalized a bunch of industries and is paying people incomes derived from the rents, from those assets. The Shaw Society has not happened. And it's not as if there's been some redistribution or predistribution of land or other assets to give lots of people their own property in the Chesterton sense. Most people today are working as wage, uh, as, uh, wage earners. But they are more content with this situation than they very likely would have been in 1928. Did Chesterton see the
1: society as on its way to collapse or just in decline? He gives a lot of indicators of decadence, for example, but it doesn't say it's collapsed yet, even though we've lost God, I guess.
0: Yes, there does seem to be a a concern on the part of Chesterton that industrial society is changing in such a way that it is uh, becoming estranged from actual people, the actual people who live in it and their needs and their traits and behaviors. Uh, One of the big themes in Chesterton's work is to make an argument that there is a, a human nature that has existed for all time. And this is a classic Catholic argument about nature and the natural, right? And industrial society can change social arrangements, but it can't get rid of this nature. And so often in his critiques of Shaw, Chesterton was quite interested in Shaw. Chesterton was so interested in Shaw that he wrote an entire book called George George Bernard Shaw about why Shaw thinks the way that he thinks and why Shaw is the way that he is. Chesterton found Shaw very curious because For him, Shaw takes a lot of positions that Chesterton considers unnatural or manifestly unrealistic. And so if you are someone who believes in this natural-unnatural distinction, if someone can propose unnatural things, and many people can be convinced or find the argument compelling... That in and of itself suggests that in that nature is able to produce someone who makes unnatural arguments. And that itself undercuts to some degree the sense in which those arguments are unnatural. The fact that there are people coming into existence with these ideas who think these things are realistic seems to be a prima facie challenge. The way that Chesterton meets that challenge is to suggest that this is a new species of Puritanism. And just as Puritanism ultimately proved unrealistic, it could not sustain itself over many generations in its energy to condemn all of these different forms of theurgic practice that are sensuous. All these different ways of trying to approach God through the sensory world, you know, dancing, drinking, having you know, big parties, you know, these kinds of uh, Dionysian or Catholic ways of, uh, of celebrating God that the Puritans reject. Uh, In likening Shaw and the socialists to Puritans, he's suggesting that this is a similar kind of reform movement that has an energy to it that may last for a while, but ultimately will prove to be incompatible with human nature. And so ultimately will become less relevant over the course of time. Now, at the same time, you will see, certainly if you read enough Chesterton, you'll find moments where he will suggest things about human nature that will strike a contemporary reader is very bizarre. Because Chesterton is writing from 100 years ago, what seems to him like normal common sense human behavior is already a little bit different from what strikes us as ordinary common sense human behavior. And this is the difficulty with making arguments about what's natural. There's always a tendency to naturalize, to reify the social conventions that are in front of you and treat them as indefeasible, as permanent fixtures of human life, right? Of course, on the contrary, if you take human beings to be something you can completely reconstruct through new social arrangements, uh, that also is going to lead you into situations where you think you can make very, very quickly, very radical changes that in point of fact, there will be a great deal of resistance to. And one of the things that we see referenced here is the idea of the peasant who owns property and Shaw's opposition to this figure. What are you to do with the peasant who owns property, the person who does own a little bit of farmland, the person who does own the family farm? There are still some of these people. It's not the case that the land has been distributed such that a very, very large number of people can be small farmers. But there are some small farmers in the 20s. And what do you do about them? They're not going to support collectivizing agriculture. They like owning their small family farm. They are accustomed to it. And for Chesterton, all of this is natural, ordinary human behavior, right? Uh, For Shaw, that figure is a problem. Uh, What is to be done? Well, insofar as Shaw becomes a little bit of a sympathizer of Stalin, Stalin wages a campaign against the Kulak farmer, against the small farmer who owns a little bit of land. Stalin tries to liquidate the Kulaks as a class to take all of their property and collectivize the farms, and insofar as the Kulaks resist, to re-educate them or kill them. And for someone like Shaw, for whom collective property is an important goal, it's difficult to say, well, how would you do that without endorsing something like what the Stalin regime is up to? Uh, And I think in the case of Shaw, Shaw doesn't really offer an alternative account of how he is to do it. Instead, he often sympathizes overtly with the Soviet project.
1: Can I unpack that? Because you mentioned some things that Chesterton felt were a bit, oh the Chesterton felt were normal that we would find strange, and then just picking off the last thing, um, how Shaw seems to support despotism. I think Chesterton would say, go back to ancient Egypt. Uh, that's the first lesson that from the beginning of time, it's very easy to be despotic in nature as long as there's complexity. It's not about. It's not a recent thing, or yeah, it's just. But it's about com. Complexity and yeah, lack of yeah, variety.
0: Shaw will do a little bit of this kind of technocratic, bureaucratic policy wonk thing where he'll say, "You know, here's a great argument for doing this policy. Nobody is beating my argument. So why are people obstinately refusing to go along with me on this point? It must be because there's something wrong with them. Uh, and so he'll pass into this anti-democratic attitude when he'll make an argument, feel that the argument hasn't been beaten by anybody, and be frustrated with the fact that the argument does not therefore carry the day, and the policy does not therefore get implemented. And we see this a lot with a certain kind of uh, technocratic person today who thinks, well, you know, the experts have made the case for something, and nobody's managed to defeat their argument, so why doesn't the policy go through? It must be because ordinary people are standing in the way, right? Conversely, Chesterton has this great confidence in the capacities of the ordinary person, and ordinary people at scale in particular, to tell when an idea is just not realistic or just doesn't fit their situation, particularly social and cultural ideas that involve regulating their ordinary day-to-day behaviors. He thinks that they have a a good instinct in general for what's natural or not natural to them and will therefore be uh, trustworthy in making decisions about these kinds of things. It comes up in the context of divorce. So one of the ways in which uh, Chesterton naturalizes, is that he suggests that the ordinary British people have a natural hatred of divorce. They just, uh, of course, have this moral instinct that divorce is wrong and that divorce shouldn't be allowed. And it's elites who are imposing the concept of divorce on ordinary people who, of course, have a natural commitment to the idea that marriage is eternal and is a permanent vow, and you have to stick with it. Now, if you go around and survey ordinary people today, you aren't going to find that most ordinary people have Ch- Chesterton's view about divorce. Uh, if you ask people, should the state allow no-fault divorce, you will find a large majority of people who think that no-fault divorce is important and an important right and that people need to be able to get out of marriages that don't work for them. Chesterton goes, you know, people will argue from the exception, but you know, Suggesting that most people should stay in their marriages their entire lives. Uh, You know, that some people argue that there are exceptions. But if we start granting exceptions, every person under the sun will say, well, I'm special. I'm the one who needs the exception. Because when you start looking for exceptions, you're really, Chesterton says, looking for prideful egotists who think that they're special or different from other people and that the ordinary rules don't apply to them. So as soon as you make an exception, everybody wants to be the exception because everybody wants to be special. And therefore, you shouldn't make exceptions, and you should continue to prohibit divorce. Uh, That, which Chesterton grounds on, you know, the ordinary person's common sense and natural attitude, clearly that is not the ordinary person's common sense and natural attitude today. There are certainly some people on the right who have that kind of view, but it would not be possible for those people to argue that that is the dominant view among ordinary people living in our societies now. Nevertheless, because Chesterton is arguing from 100 years ago, uh, Chesterton thinks that maybe it is the case that this is the natural position that everybody has. And this is how this kind of natural view can get you in trouble. Now, all that said, the Shaw view, I think, uh, also comes in for a good deal of criticism here, and and rightfully so. The Shaw position leads to things like liquidating the Kulaks. So I come away from this uh, looking at it as... uh, Here you have two positions that are very flawed and two thinkers who are very good at criticizing each other. But neither one of them was really able to present a theory of what could happen or should happen that did in fact happen.
1: Could you save the divorce argument by comparing it to just other forms where normal people think you have to keep to your station or career track, whereas the super rich can kind of... Be more flexible and say, "I did some time doing this, did some time doing that. Now I'm doing this." So,
0: it's well, still like I imagine you divorcing. could make a similar kind of argument about, say, the Indian caste system. For a long time, you know, the varna system in India would have been regarded as something you absolutely have to stick to. You absolutely have to stick to the hereditary occupation that is assigned to you through the varna system. And people would say, "Well, that is, of course, the way that things have always been." And now you'll find that lots of people don't stick to the career that is laid out ostensibly by their caste or by their varna and they go and do other things and that there's less and less observance of all of that now is that because the uh, people who are trying to revise that religious system are unnatural and are acting against what ultimately the uh, indian population or the hindu population will will tolerate or accept or is it the case that these structures are to some degree defeasible and depending on historical context and conditions, they can potentially change or Yeah. It's very easy to take a kind of dogmatist position in one direction or the other to make an argument that everything is flux and everything changes and all social structures are liquid or on the opposite side to naturalize everything and try to set everything in stone and say nothing ultimately can change and any attempt to change anything will ultimately fail. And this is sometimes if you read Chesterton and Shaw, they can ossify a little bit into stereotypes of what we might think of of, of, as progressive and conservative thinkers with Shaw as the progressive and Chesterton as the conservative thinker. And the whole thing can get a little bit uh, thin if you start to take it in that direction. Uh, That's partially why I thought it was right to focus on this debate, because the debate shows that these two positions are not just uh, general attitudes of progressivism and conservatism. There are specific economic proposals here. And none of these economic proposals have been taken up by anybody. So while I think there are a lot of people who look at Chesterton or Shaw as someone who has the an attitude that seems to them familiar or seems to them a bit like their attitude or a bit like an attitude that they don't like, What we find in practice is that there are very few conservatives and very few socialists or liberals or progressives who have something quite like Shaw's view or Chesterton's view. We might find maybe a few more uh, Shaw types out there than Chesterton types today, depending on whether you want to read Shaw as uh, a Fabian gradualist or as someone who defended authoritarian regimes. And I think there's room in Shaw's corpus to say that, you know, maybe Shaw was both of those things at different times to different degrees. But yeah, Yeah. I I think that there's. There is at once a, a familiarity to these people, to these guys. They do seem a little bit familiar, but then when you start to dig into what precisely they propose, there's some incredibly unfamiliar aspects. There are moments where Chesterton and Shaw feel like they come from completely different worlds from us. He doesn't seem like a
1: dogmatic religious figure in the sense that he celebrates the drama that comes with being forced into a certain situation and therefore kind of romanticizes the conflict and how if if people are say they're not allowed to divorce, they have to stay as a peasant still, that actually creates more variety than if they had free choice. If they could choose who they associate with, they actually lose free will. And there's less yeah.
0: Yeah, less some wonder. of the substantive positions that Chesterton takes, if you were to take them today, would strike someone who thinks like Chesterton as puritanical positions, right? If you were to take a position that you can't permit divorce today, that would not look like the natural position affirmed by the demos. That would look like a puritanical hardline position, right? So some of the substantive positions that Chesterton takes would have a different valence now and could not be in Chesterton's politics today if Chesterton retained his commitment to democracy and the ordinary person's common sense. And so what we tend to find is that people who like Chesterton today, and there are a sizable number of people who like Chesterton or like distributism, a lot of these people either have very different social or cultural positions from Chesterton himself because they have updated their social and cultural views on the basis of what is now common sense, what's the centrist middle ground. Or they have deviated from Chesterton in so far as they've held on to certain hardline conservative positions that Chesterton's own way of thinking and approaching things would have implied they ought to have moved on from. So if you do, and this is one of the interesting debates within the Catholic tradition, Uh, if you observe that Catholic commitment to naturalism and to what seems to the ordinary population to be natural or, or reasonable enough for them, In different contexts, the natural does come to mean different things. So while a lot of Catholics will emphasize that the natural is a transcendental category, in practice, what will seem natural in different contexts will be a bit different because things do change. Contexts do change. So if you are really committed to that naturalism, then there will be an admission that the context does change. And therefore, what is natural to people is a little different in different situations. And you see some of this in the Catholic natural law tradition, some recognition in some of these theories of of the natural that they're context dependent, that what is, say, natural to a British person and natural to an Irish person might be different. And this is where you start getting into some of the stereotypes that Chesterton traffics in. One of the ways in which Chesterton makes his concept of the natural potentially believable is by arguing that different people in different places have, to a very substantial degree, different natures. Now, this isn't a a kind of strict biological racist view. Chesterton, as a Catholic, will affirm that everybody is, is human and equal in certain respects and has certain things in their nature in common. But he will say that there are certain behaviors or tendencies or ways of thinking that are natural to an Irishman but would not be natural to an Englishman and vice versa. So that what strikes an Irishman as natural or reasonable will be a little bit different from what would strike an Englishman as natural or reasonable. Now, if he can make that distinction between an Irishman and an Englishman, you best believe he can make that distinction between an Englishman and someone living in a completely different part of the world. So this means that while the concept of the natural seems to be this transcendental thing, it is in point of practice for Chesterton something very variable. And one of the things that Chesterton emphasizes a lot in his work is that he is not setting down cataphatically rules that will always be followed. He has a a more hesitant, more apophatic approach, not to the point of the agnostic, who is so unsure about what's going on that the agnostic is willing to doubt God, but in comparison with Shaw and the puritanical and quite specific positions that Shaw lays out, Chesterton has a certain willingness in his thinking. And that willingness comes from this attentiveness to how in different contexts or situation, what situations, what seems natural to local people will be different. So that means if you're really thinking like Chesterton, then your sense of what's natural cannot be precisely the same as Chesterton's himself. And this is why a lot of people who like Chesterton don't get caught up on and worried about the specific cultural positions Chesterton takes that no longer seem appropriate or natural to people today. Rather, they are committed to this general attitude of observing, and especially in cultural matters, what people consider to be common sense.
1: It seems to be that the specific cultural stuff will be the limitation, but the limitation will always refer back to a constant natural, in the sense that limitation is sacred in Chesterton, and that's how you find the divine by means of paradox. And he always writes in this manner where, you know, the very thing which is a huge a bit like Zizek almost, like the huge obstacle is actually what is what freedom is working on. And I think freedom is a constant, so is property ownership, distribution of power being equal, you know, friend-enemy distinction, passions, the need to find affection in your local community. So those are still pretty consistent natural things, right?
0: Yes. So I think this is part of what makes natural law theory really difficult is that there are some iterations of natural law theory where the natural is very contingent and very much depending upon context and where there is awareness on the part of the theorist and it's built into the conception of, of the natural that there is this variation and this contingency. At the same time, there will be other theorists who will naturalize very, very heavily and very, very broadly. So if we think back to, say, the old, old theories of say, uh, natural rights or human rights, which project all over the world, the same universal things onto everybody. Some of that can seem overly thick and overly uh, schematic. So you're going to find that there are some theorists of the natural who are very focused on contingency. And you will find that there are others who are more focused on this sense in which the natural is anchored directly into the divine or into the universal. And the difficulty is that the concept of the natural does not in and of itself imply one of those ways of thinking more than the other. It's open to both this idea that what's natural to different populations in different places varies depending on the place or depending on who you're talking to. And it's also open to the idea that there's a single human nature, which is completely transcendental and permanent. And so... When we start talking about the natural, we have to get really specific about what we mean by that. Otherwise, as an abstraction, it is a very dynamic and wide ranging thing. And the funny thing is the whole point of the concept of the natural is to be an anchor point. It's to be something which delimits what you can propose because the natural is is not meant to be everything. But in another sense, anything that is thinkable is you know, thought of by something that's in the universe. So, anything that is thinkable or anything any, anybody does is to some degree natural insofar as they're in the universe and they're doing it. So, the action or the behavior has, in some sense, come up out of nature. So, it's very, it's a very tricky abstraction to use. And I think this is why the concept of the natural has played a diminishing role in legitimation stories over time historically. Because... It can be conceptualized in so many conflicting ways. It's so unclear what it means that very often by invoking it, you start a debate rather than end it. I can imagine
1: Chesterton saying that we've lost a natural reasoning because we've lost metaphysical reasoning. Do you see where that's going?
0: Oh, yeah. Can a lot of people on the, on the right today make that kind of argument. Okay, how, how, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people today argue that you know because people have taken the postmodern positions of the kind we've talked about in recent weeks, that there's been an abandonment of this concept of the natural completely. And what we instead have is this endless contingency and that there needs to be some kind of return to this concept of the natural. Uh, The difficulty is even when the concept of the natural was being invoked by theorists like G.K. Chesterton or Edmund Burke or whomever, very often it was understood in a contingent way. Uh, and in being understood in a contingent way, that leaves room in it for the possibility of new contexts. And so even if you were to bring back the concept today, it wouldn't necessarily have the implications that many people who are critics of postmodernism think that it would have. If we really went around and asked people what seems to be the natural way to think about the divorce law, we would not get an answer that um, some of those people on the on the right who want us to you know, bring back that concept to think that the answer would be, and you could only really deal with that by saying, well, the whole population has become unnatural. But if the whole population has become unnatural, then what on earth does the natural refer to? If the whole society is unnatural, then you know, at that point, the natural can't refer to any kind of common sense or baseline way of thinking that could be generalizable. And at that point, the concept doesn't seem very useful anymore. If nobody thinks in a natural way, if there is no common sense or ordinary person's opinion that you can appeal to, uh, and maybe that might be just because the society is too polyvalent, there's too much pluralism and too much disagreement. So where would you go to find common sense or the demos or the ordinary person's centrist attitude? Uh, Or maybe that position is still out there somewhere, but nobody can access it because the people who are engaged in these conversations are in overly elite spaces that leave them too far estranged from that person or maybe that person no longer participates in politics in any meaningful or consistent way. So there's no way of even hearing what it is that they think.
1: I thought the metaphysical way of doing things is you start with the contingency and always arrive at necessity, or you start with despair where there's more questions, not solutions, and then you arrive at hope, you're comforted and you have faith even though you haven't got an immediate answer.
0: Well, But this this depends a lot on whether you're understanding this concept that you're trying to get back to in a singular way or in a multifaceted way. So like when we did Gandhi a while back, Gandhi says that there are many different paths to God, many different paths, one truth. So and that God or truth will look different from different vantage points, different angles, different methods of pursuing. So you can have a commitment to a universal truth or God. But that commitment can be polyvalent and pluralistic in the way in which it's understood. So many different legitimate ways to go after that thing. In the same way with the natural, someone who affirms the natural can say, well, there's an Irish way and a French way and an English way and a Scottish way and a German way and so on and so forth of doing this thing. And all of these are different ways, right? And maybe there's a difference between a Catholic Irish way and a Protestant Irish way. Indeed, Chesterton says that exactly, that those are two different and separate ways of doing things. And so depending on your context, what the natural means will be something different. And then, you know, that invites you to go, well, okay, we're in the 21st century and what strikes people as natural is different now from what it was then. Uh, at the same time, if you if you have so much disagreement about what's ordinary or normal or conventional behavior, if there's so much disagreement about what norms are, It's going to become hard to even use a concept like the natural because to say, well, the Irish think this way, it has to be the case that you can meaningfully generalize about what people in Ireland think. And if there's intense disagreement within Ireland and within every society and lots and lots and lots of different little niche political fandoms and and, uh, rabbit holes all over the internet. To try to say what all of those people think on a natural level all in one go is very hard. So you can then say, well, the internet has has corrupted everything and and denaturalized all of us and turned us all into little weirdos who think weirdly and are out of touch with what's natural and therefore everyone needs to go touch grass. You hear that on the internet all the time. Everyone needs to go touch grass, go outside. Well, there's an implicit assumption there that if everybody did that, that, they would all converge in some way on something that if everybody was just rooted in their community and in in the local area, they would all think in a broadly similar way because they would be rooted in that. Now, maybe that is the case, but also it's not natural to people, especially young people, to get off the computer. It's not natural to them to put down the phone. Trying to put down the phone or trying to put down the computer is a Puritan move today for young people. It's not what it's natural to them to do. And if you went around and said, let's, ban phones or let's ban computers or let's set hard time limits on how long you can spend on devices, you, know, you would get the same kind of, of pushback that you'd get if you tried to ban and when they did try to ban alcohol 100 years ago. So in a way, you know, all of the different arguments for getting back in touch with nature involve transgressions of what is now natural to people. If you take the concept of natural, you know what do we all have in common? Well, all these people online have in common the fact that they're online. And that is what's natural to them being online, they're digital people. That is their nature now.
1: Maybe that's the, the equivalent of wine and, and feasting and fun games, which Chesterton would also celebrate as part of our humanity in a non-Puritan
0: way. And Yes, you- the difficulty is a lot of people who like this kind of thinking, think that people need to return to a way of living that is more pre-industrial. So if what is natural to people is now not just industrial, but digital in character, because we now live in a digital age that is meaningfully different in terms of day-to-day life to the point where what strikes people as natural or common sense is very far removed from what did 100 years ago, much less pre-industrialization, it becomes really difficult to make an argument for constructing a society on the lines that, say, Chesterton lays out where you're supposed to do some kind of predistribution or distributism that gets people back into being on a farm. By the time you get to the 50s and 60s, the idea that you've got to return people to farming, that what people need is to go back to farming, that's an idea which is increasingly not distributist, but Maoist in character. That idea is so strange by the time you get to the 50s and 60s. You know, this idea that really the way in which you ought to relate to life is the way in which the peasant relates to life. You know, the fetishizing of the peasant is having privileged access to something. Uh, that becomes a Maoist conviction at, at mid-century. You know, it becomes the idea, you know, the Khmer Rouge says, get get people out of the cities and, and put them back in in. Into farming. Now they don't necessarily say that you should have each one of these people owning farms you know, as a small peasant farmer. They, the you know, Maoists and, and the Kimarusha, affirm various visions of collective agriculture. But this idea that you ought to have as the economic base the, the, the farm, you know, that idea is, is so far removed now from where we're at. You know, to the point where if Dr. Phil wants to completely resocialize somebody. You know, Dr. Phil, the psychologist on TV, he says, you know, send them to the ranch. That's the the meme online, right? Send them to the farm. Send them to a completely different context. You know, take their phone away. At this point, when you say you know, to a young person, "I'm going to take your phone away," you know, this is taken as an attack on their very ability to exist. This is, you know, and I mean this not in a way of making fun. This is genuinely. If you're a digital person who is habituated to life online and on the internet and on screens, it is not such a simple thing to take away the phone or take away the computer. That is like telling someone, never go into a bar in the 20s. It is like telling someone, you must never dance. And the the recognition of that, once you come around to that point, it makes it very difficult to really implement something like this Chestertonian attitude.
1: Well, he didn't say that everyone should return to peasants. He just said that whereas you can't have a nation full of millionaires or communists, there's been infinite number of tolerably contented peasants. And then, as you said, if a chess could just apply this to the modern day, maybe consider themselves a peasant on the internet.
0: Well, the, but the that, that is not just a, a purely cultural move. That's an economic move. That's having a small farm, having a small family farm. And at this point, if you look at, say, agriculture as a percentage of output, or the number of of people who need to be able to do agricultural work for the society to thrive, it's not a very large number of people. It's not a very large percentage of the population, in part because our efficiency when it comes to working land has improved, in part because the price of food has come down. It would be very difficult to divide all of the agricultural land up into self-sustaining parcels. That- uh, could accommodate the whole population when you have so many people as we do now. Have you thought about dividing the digital space or
1: or the profits that are made from it? Or is it just impossible, too much of a rhizome?
0: Well, so you can, you know, this is where you start getting into things like the Schwa idea of you can have, say, the state centralize. You know, we've talked a little bit about that old zany idea of mine, fund.gov, the you know, government-run streaming service. You have know, the state, you know, Get some money and use it to create, you know, a, a streaming platform like a YouTube or a Netflix, and then through a transparent algorithm, you know, uh, allocate money to different creators, right? But those creators don't own the wealth; they're receiving an income from the state. And the state, you know, you have to trust the state in that situation, and and you often express mistrust. You express a little bit of a Chestertonian mistrust when I throw this idea at you. You'd have to trust the state to pay people. Uh, and to pay them fairly, and to make an algorithm that's fair, and to protect the speech rights of the different creators, and and to be trusted to do all of that. And there's a, a trust question there. And I think Chesterton is right to raise the trust question. The issue is that there is no way of doing that, of having everybody, say, making entertainment, and have them own property in the way that you would own land or in the way that you'd own a machine. And that's in part because the digital space is by its very nature, not something that can be physically divided up. And efforts to do this, efforts to physically divide the digital world up into property that you can own, whether it's through intellectual property or things like NFTs, they just seem a little bit out of sync with what the digital is.
1: But maybe this changes it because Shaw did not consider the means of production to mean the machines. He meant literally the people. They are the means of production.
0: Well, this is one way of trying to circumvent the point is to say, well, the machines aren't actually the things that do the producing anyway, it's the people who do the producing. So as long as the people are getting compensated, what does it matter? Who technically speaking owns the machines? What does ownership matter? Who cares about ownership? The reason that Chesterton cares about ownership is that Chesterton cares about dependence in the, the old-fashioned Roman sense uh, and a little bit you know, in the Quentin Skinner, you know, neo-Republican sense that we might recognize today, that if you depend upon somebody else, and for Chesterton, when you depend on the state, you don't just depend on an abstraction or even an abstract bureaucracy, you depend on the small elite group that controls the state because for Chesterton, the state is always controlled by a small elite group, even the democratic state, right? So if you depend on them for an income and if they happen to not give you that income, you're in trouble. Or if they happen to attach conditions to that income, you have no choice but to acquiesce to those conditions. For Chesterton, that relation of dependence is a kind of slavery. It's a kind of domination. So for Chesterton, if the state gives everybody an income, it makes everybody a slave. In the same way that if the Roman master you know, gives you some money, and this is indeed what Roman masters did. If you go back and listen to our Roman economy episode, right? Roman masters gave their slaves money. They did pay their slaves sometimes for their work. Uh, and in giving them money, eventually the slave could save up money and potentially buy their freedom. Although the Percentage of Roman slaves who actually succeeded in doing this is under dispute and is—it's you know, methodologically contentious—how often it happened and what the share was and how big it was. But in any case, the fact that you pay the slave was no objection in antiquity to the idea that the slave was a slave because the slave depended completely on the master to survive. The slave depended on the master for food, for shelter, for money all of those things. So in the same way for Chesterton, if you have someone who doesn't have property, that person is in a relationship of dependence. If they're receiving welfare, they're dependent on the state. If they're an employee, they depend on the employer. They depend on who it is that they work for. So there is still this sense that the wage earner is not free in Chesterton's account, which is why Chesterton thinks you do need to change the distribution so that these wage earners actually own the machines or actually own the land and can be farmers or artisans or craftspeople. And this is the very radical part of the Chesterton view. This is a view that is not at all compatible with capitalism as as it currently exists or operates. And a lot of Catholic economic thinking is not at all compatible with capitalism as it currently exists or operates. The difficulty is that very often the Catholic economic proposals involve something like a return to a society where very large numbers of people potentially own property. They often look like an expansion of what might have been regarded once upon a time a long time ago as the, as the aristocracy, bringing more and larger parts of the population into that position. And the difficulty is you, it's very hard to bring everybody into that position. You might be able to distribute land in such a way that more people you know, have land, or you might be able to distribute machines in such a way that more people own machines than currently do, you know, certainly you could do that. You could break up these large, you know, land uh, parcels, you know, certain enormously wealthy landowners like Trinity College, Cambridge, you could break up the land that they own. You could break up the land the monarchy owns and distribute it out to people. And that would increase the number of people who could derive an income from property that they own. But you couldn't get everybody taken care of by that means, especially as the populations become very, very large, It's not possible to handle everybody that way. But of course, if you go the opposite direction, and you centralize all the property in the hands of the state. For Chesterton, that in some ways is even worse because that means that now everybody is in a relationship of being dominated. Whereas right now, some people have property and some people are are not being dominated. In a society where nobody has property, then everybody is being dominated. And this is why people who operate in this particular phylum hate this idea of you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. You own nothing, but you won't mind. You'll be content. You'll be, you'll consent to owning nothing. You know, this really, really bothers people in that Chesterton phylum, in that Catholic tradition. I
1: find it strange how he squares that with, so this non-dependence, non-domination, with seeing drama as beneficial and forced association as religious and romantic because it Your surroundings are unexpected and disliked. On the one hand, like you, yeah, you own you you own something, but you cannot choose your. On the other hand, you cannot own your associations. You know, it's a bit of a a weird one. It's like you can be non-dependent in the area of property, but when it comes to actual life, it's it's actually good for you to have that romantic drama non-freedom, because that brings out the will, which is the more religious, allows you to cultivate certain virtues. It's a bit strange how he squares the two.
0: Yeah. So if you own land, the fact that you own land near other people who also own land necessarily means that you are going to be involved with them. So your freedom comes at the cost of your involvement with the local community and with that community's sets of interests and needs. Because land is, is geographically fixed, the fixedness of it means that the freedom that you get from owning the land nonetheless entangles you in a community and gives you a sense of response, set of responsibilities and duties that you can't really escape. So those are thrust upon you as part of the price of the liberty that you get from owning the property. And you could you know, see that kind of argument in you know, ancient Greek political theory where you know, the argument is, well, if you own land and you own land that is proximate to a particular Greek city, well, all of you landowners have to defend your land together from others who would take it from you. And therefore, that necessarily means you've got to be involved in the city and you've got to care about it. You've got to care about its maintenance. And you can't really get out from under that. And the person who owns land but doesn't want to have to do their their duties to the city or or to the community or the village or the town or what have you you is obviously acting in an irresponsible way because the only way they can have land is through the continuation of those associations. So you don't get to choose the fact that the land that you inherited is you know, proximate to Athens you know, or proximate to Sparta. You don't get to choose that. And so there are certain duties and certain entanglements that come with where the land is. Yeah. And that's part of what happens when you have a society that is property-based. And so someone like Shaw will go, well, wouldn't it be better if you didn't have those entanglements? And that loyalty to a particular locality, and you instead just received a chunk of cash from the state. So what bothers you more, the entanglements of community or the dependence upon the state? And it doesn't seem possible to avoid both of those things. And this is what I like about doing this debate and these theorists is that they're really good at pointing out the things that are not quite right about one another's theories.
1: Do you think you could convince Chesterton and the distributists to expand this distribution to more than just property? So as Shaw wanted.
0: Well, you agree. do see Chesterton acknowledge that there are exceptions. It's it's interesting because when he talks about divorce, he says that you can't make any exceptions because then people will say that everything's an exception, right? But when he is in this debate with Shaw about uh, and this debate with Shaw takes place a, about a decade after the writing about divorce, uh, which will be in the show notes for the Patreon listeners. Uh, the, uh, the, the debate, he does make direct appeal to the concept of an exception. And he says that coal mines in particular are exceptions, that the state can own the coal mines. Well, if the state can own the coal mines, then I suppose that's how the coal miners are going to have to be taken care of, right? The coal miners are going to be in a union. And the state is going to negotiate with the coal miners union. And that's going to result in the coal miners getting paid out some dividend from the mine. But that's not going to be a situation where the miners can straightforwardly trust the state to pay them what they deserve. And I think this is broadly the case. If you have, say, a publicly run coal company or oil company or what have you, Just because it's publicly run doesn't mean that the state bureaucrats are going to pay the workers their fair share. The workers still have to be very attentive to their interests and organize and stay aware and potentially fight and struggle with the people who are managing the state, because those state managers aren't necessarily going to pay them what they deserve. And we see this in states that do sectoral bargaining, where The the labor movement doesn't necessarily trust the state to always bargain in good faith or to always be a neutral bargainer. And so in those situations, you do sometimes get quite serious conflict between the unions and the state. It's not necessarily a a happy marriage because state bureaucrats are in a different position and do have different interests from the workers who work in the sectors that those bureaucrats oversee. So it doesn't eliminate class conflict. It doesn't produce a a utopian condition to do something like that. Uh, Nevertheless, because Chesterton can't see any other way of doing that apart from, say, trying to argue that therefore we shouldn't mine coal, which would be unnatural to people in his context. So he's not going to propose that. Uh, He goes along with it. Someone like Gandhi would say, well, therefore you shouldn't mine coal. You should reject all of that. The fact that it's not compatible with this uh, – a Good or or just distribution means that it just is an activity people should reject spiritually on the basis that it necessarily comes with these distortions. Chesterton won't do that because of his commitment to the natural. It's already natural to the industrial British person. This idea that, of course, not only should coal be mined, but all of the benefits of coal mining, all of the energy and all of the machines that coal mining allows to operate, those things must all continue to operate.
1: Yeah, both sides of the debate could seem to silence the individual, the worker, the public opinion. But it's interesting how Chesterton says that public opinion is public opinion minus my own opinion. So, whatever the other person thinks is valid, whatever I think, it's not important. And then if everybody does this, then there's just a vacuum which is just filled by a few certain kinds of journalists. And so, yeah, he's, he, a communist could maybe find sympathy sympathy with a conservative Catholic argument if you're talking about giving each individual an opinion about their work, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and there are major divisions within the Marxist tradition between, say, uh, you know, people who are focused on the possibility of distributing income like Andre Gores and you know, old-fashioned workerist uh, Marxists who think it's very important to focus more on uh, – you know the, the position of people in, in labor. I, I do think that the thing that ultimately makes someone like uh, Chesterton very much not a Marxist is that Chesterton would rather have a society where some people own stuff than a society where no one does. Uh, and he would rather conserve a society where some people own stuff than move to a society where no one does. Whereas I think generally, and it's, it varies, but within the Marxist tradition and within the left, a society where everybody owns stuff and where nobody owns stuff are similarly valued, a society where everybody's an aristocrat and a society where everything is collectively owned or the notion of property drops away, those societies are closer to value to one another than either is to the society where some people own stuff and many other people own nothing.
1: And this is a more roundabout, but since we're coming close to close, do you think you agree with him saying that God is the best rational skeptic and actually wants philosophical doubt? Or would you think that religion and philosophy are more separate?
0: Well, I think... One of the things that I think has come out of many of the episodes that we've done about religion is this emphasis on the degree to which religion is philosophical in its best iterations, that there, every faith on earth has got a, a philosophical iteration of it that plays with these tensions between what we think we might be able to know and what we can't know and can't be sure about. And it's even people who deny uh, all religious traditions outright. If they do that in a dogmatist kind of way, they are more similar to the religious traditions they reject than they realize. And this is a criticism that Chesterton levels at Shaw all the time, that Shaw is too much of a dogmatist and he's too rigid and he's too specific and, and overly precise with all of his pronouncements about what people have to do, too absolute. And I think... An opposition to dogmatism in general is a good thing. A uh, you know, a, a trying to get outside of that dogmatic skeptic binary that we otherwise so often get caught in is a good thing. And that dogmatic skeptic binary can be religious. It can be scientist in character. I think we see people on both sides of the God question who are dogmatists and on uh, both sides of the God question who are skeptics. Insofar as there are some very, very, uh, you know, skeptical forms of religion that are nonetheless forms of religion out there. That's that's broadly my take. At this point, I don't really view myself as, say, pro or anti-religion, because I think that oftentimes people have projected onto the category of religion the concept of dogma. When really the question of whether we're dealing with a dogma is a separate and distinct question from whether we're dealing with religion. And those two questions really have almost nothing to do with each other.
1: I thought he Does said- Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I thought he said Shaw was not so much rigid except for when he thinks that say, humanity is not progressive, therefore we should choose progress over human limitation. And just,
0: he can't, you can't pin Shaw down. He says there's no golden rule. The contradictions with Shaw that really fascinates Chesterton is that he is both a progressive and a Puritan. So he is someone who is very rigidly committed to particular hard rules that for Chesterton are unrealistic. At the same time, he is also constantly changing and updating these rules in a bid to be ever more modern or ever more on top of things. So I think a lot of people today see in Chesterton's critiques of Shaw many of the critiques that they might like to make about certain parts of the cultural left insofar as there are these very hard rules for how you've got to treat people, how you've got to behave, but the rules are constantly being updated and changed so that you can never be on top of them, so that they never correspond with the ordinary person's uh, uh, natural instincts or common sense or a sense of what's normal, ordinary behavior. It's never possible to reestablish any kind of stable set of norms because the person who thinks like this is constantly changing to try to be as modern as possible, as progressive as possible, as ahead of the curve as possible. And that, I think, is the, one of the central contradictions about Shaw that drives Chesterton crazy and also fascinates him and causes him to want to hang out with Shaw all the time and write about Shaw all the time and talk about Shaw all the time. One thing I did notice is that Chesterton talks about Shaw more than the reverse. Because Chesterton finds Shaw really fascinating and Shaw finds Chesterton just a little bit reactionary. Maybe it's the opposite with you, you find you could you
1: could find some conservative Christian very fascinating but they might find you just ordinary leftist. I don't know.
0: (laughs) Well, you could certainly say that in this episode, I spent more time talking about Chesterton and how Chesterton strikes me as a a, a weird guy than I did about Shaw. Uh, Yeah, maybe maybe the tradition or side of things that you start with has something to do with how you tend to view people who tend to have a opposite side valence or are thought to be opposite side valence. yeah, that's an interesting point, Alex. That's a good way to close. That was sharp. Well, I like that. Yeah, I was also got to ask
1: you what you think about the other two points which make a people great. After you consider the national things like government, war, and art, but you know, it was basically ah, well. yeah. Go, go ahead. Um, do you? What's your attitude to life in terms of how? What's your art, artistic attitude towards the holiday, and what's your attitude to death in terms of? What's your moral attitude towards a fight?
0: Oh, uh, hmm, those are complicated questions. What's my attitude to holidays?
1: Artistically is the holiday, and then the fight is morally, and that mm-hmm. can basically help you decide where you stand
0: on any political issue. <laughs> it's an interesting little personality test, a little political personality test. Well, you know, I when it comes to fighting, I, I think. You should avoid it where you can because it's dangerous to fight. Fighting is risky, so you shouldn't do it unless you've really got to. Uh, And when you do, you got to bear in mind what you're getting into. Um, Holidays, I I, I don't necessarily think that art is like a holiday. Insofar as I think for a lot of people, art is their techne, it's their craft. It is the thing that they principally do rather than a break from something else. Maybe for someone like Chesterton, art was a holiday. Maybe for him, writing fiction was a break from something else, from maybe the spiritual struggle of life. But I think for a lot of people, art is itself the means through which the spiritual struggle is conducted, The, the making of art, the crafting of art, the being of an artist. Uh, is the the struggle maybe for Chesterton with his sense of humor? That wouldn't be the case. No,
1: because that sounds like the modern aesthete who puts beauty before morality. Doesn't lose morality, but just defers it to the other person and says, "I'll do what's pretty."
0: And well, it, it depends a little bit on whether you think about art as you know estranged from what's good or from morality in that kind of way. I think for someone like Plato, a lot of artistic crafts or technes were ways of pursuing morality, ways of engaging in mediated relations with the good. Some people make fiction not just out of a, a sense of humor or a sense of, of wanting to play or have fun or have a good time, but out of a, a genuine desire to do something good through their art, uh, but I think this is a, a continuing question: whether that is an appropriate attitude to art, whether that is something we can do with art. You know, if we go back to the leotard episode from a little while back, you know, leotard argues that you know the role of the artist is to make what otherwise can't be expressed, you know, something that enters our minds to gesture it—the thing that we can't otherwise say or can't otherwise directly express. Uh, that's not, say, just giving a dogmatic political position. That's not just telling people what to think or how to think, but it is getting at something that is otherwise excluded or left out, which I think has a certain political or moral valence to it, although a very different political or moral valence from what we might associate with platonic art. You know, the idea of art as a holiday is I think a very different attitude, not just from the platonic way of thinking about art, but also from Leotard's way. All right, let's wrap up there. Thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Goodbye.